His holy name. Amen. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want you to take them uh, to the book of Acts. Acts chapter number 4. Acts chapter number 4. For the past several weeks, before our, our kind of our Christmas time, and then after that, the last few weeks, we have been focusing on one of, the, I believe, one of the essentials of our church. What we need foundationally going forward is God reforms, reshapes, and uses us and, and does something great in our midst. We need to be a people of prayer a people that focus on, a, on an ability or on something outside of ourselves. I don't have within me what can make this a great church. I'm sorry to bust your bubble. I, I'm sorry to kill all of your expectations, but I don't have what is in me, in me, what is needed to make this church great. It lies outside of me, and it also lies outside of you. But even though it lies outside of us, it is not unaccessible to us. Amen? And so we need to be a praying church. And we've looked at different examples of priorities of prayer and, and such. And so today, I want us to look at an unusual passage of Scripture where I believe that prayer really is the centerpiece of what we see play out in the verses that follow. Acts chapter number uh, 4, and look at verse number 23. Acts 4 and verse 23. Now I will give you more of the context later on in the message. We'll talk about what is going on this time. I'm just going to pick up reading right there, and then we'll continue with some context a little later on. Verse 23. And when they were released, this is talking about the uh, Peter and John was, were released from the Sanhedrin. They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look up, uh, upon uh, their hearts and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, notice this, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now the full member, excuse me, now the full number of those who believed 
were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they were everything, they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. And I think I exceeded what we had on the board. Sorry about that, Brother Roger. That's such a good text. I think we just keep on reading. Amen. Uh, there was one preacher who used to say that they used to ask him why he read so many long texts. He said, I just keep reading until I get up courage to start preaching. I think that might be my aim this morning, to get up courage to start preaching. But I want to talk to you this morning out of this text about how to be a world-shaking church. How to be a world-shaking church. Faith community church, would you like to shake this community? Would you like to shake Dade County? Would you like to shake our country? Yea, even our world by the power of God? I believe there are keys in this text that God will, that will put us in a place where God might well do that self-same thing. Every time I read this text, I I can't help but think of a church in Rydell, Georgia. That's just above Cartersville, down there off of 75. The name of the church is Pine Log Methodist Church. It's one of the oldest, continuous, uh, the oldest church in continuous use in Cass and Bartow County and is on the National Register of Historic Districts. Now the most notable and unique aspect of this church is not its age or its location, but what took place there over a hundred years ago. A marble slab marker is on the church. It was unveiled when it was made a landmark and it recounted the unusual event. Listen to what it says. It took place at the last service of the revival meeting after the evangelist delivered a powerful sermon with very little results. The events that followed were on the marker. Here's what it says. On this site, August the 31st, 1886, the Reverend N.J. Sullivan prayed this prayer, quote, Lord, if it takes it, to move the hearts of these people, shake the ground on which this old building stands, end quote. Before the conclusion of the Reverend Sullivan's prayer, the ground beneath the church began to violently shake. And needless to say, many who were in attendance made their way down to pray at the altar. Listen, I I don't know. This event echoed there echoes what we see in Acts chapter number 4. But it was a church in Acts 4 that was not only shaken physically, but was shaken spiritually. I don't know how it all played out in Rydell, Georgia at Pine Log Methodist Church, but I do know how it played out here. And God did something when He shook that place in the individuals that were within that that shook them personally. 
You see, if there is anything that we aspire to to be as a church, it is to be a church that is spiritually shaken, to, that has an impact in our community and around the world. Every one of us can be a part of what makes up a world-shaking church individually that will collectively shake our community by seeing three essentials that I want to point out in this text. Listen, I want us to see first of all three, these three essentials. Number one, the first essential is this, the essential elements of this prayer. I want us to look at this prayer and pull apart the elements. What's important about this prayer? What did they pray? They had fantastic results. They had unimaginable results. What did they pray? What did they say? And so, first of all, in order to know what's going on with their prayer, we got to know something of the context. So, in the, in the context of where we are in Acts chapter number 4, it all kind of goes back to Acts chapter 3. Peter and John were going down at the appointed time of prayer to the temple. They crossed through the gate called Beautiful. Do you remember this scene? How that there was a man laying at the gate, beautiful, begging alms. He had been there uh, since a child. The man had been lame for 40 years, constantly begging of those that went into uh, the temple uh, to worship there. And so you know the story. Peter and John goes in. Peter latched his view on the man as he asked for alms. And Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name... Oh, pardon my King James right there. And they give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk, took him by the hand, and boom, the man got up and walked. He not only, he not only walked, he cut a rug. Amen. All the way into the temple, shouting and praising God. Well, it raised a number of eyebrows because Peter, in seeing the tumult and the attention brought to this man, pulls him up a stump and begins to preach. He said, I'll tell you what healed this man. It's not me, but it's that name Jesus that caused this man to, uh, to be made whole. And you need to repent. You're the ones that crucified Jesus. You're the ones that are guilty. You need to repent and believe the gospel. And all of a sudden, the religious leaders of that day say, we can't have that. I'm, uh, I'm condensing a lot here. We can't have that. So they arrested Peter and John, hauled them in before the Sanhedrin. They began to question them. And they looked at these men and they began to talk to them. And they said, how are you? Why are you preaching in this name Jesus? And Peter says, he's that, he's that stone. You remember that stone that was set at naught, that the builder set at naught, that's become the chief cornerstone? And he said, there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And those Sanhedrin looked at each other and said, Man, these are unlearned men, and yet they've been with Jesus. They have been with Him. And so they decided to tell them to charge them, to threaten them. Don't you speak in Jesus' name. Here's where we're coming in our prayer. Don't you speak in Jesus' name. Don't you quote that name. You, you, you keep silent when it comes to Jesus, or we'll punish you, we'll lash you, we'll threaten you. Peter, Peter hints at this, and we'll look at it later, but he hints and say, we must do or what, what, uh, whether it be wrong or right, we must do what we're compelled to do, and then they let them go. 
And so by the time we come to verse 23, Peter and John are making their way back to that nucleus. More than likely, probably that 120, that upper room group from chapter number uh, chapter number 2, that small nucleus. There were thousands in the church by then, but that small nucleus there, and they begin to testify as to what was happening. They said, fellas, guys, ladies and guys, it, it, that we've been threatened by the Sanhedrin. If we go out preaching in the name of Jesus, we're going to be suffer punishment. And that's what happened here. They were brought to a point of decision. Decision number one, they are to obey the rulers and remove the name Jesus. Uh, I think it's interesting uh, that in Luke 24, 47, when Jesus, just before He departed, He said that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. To do what the Sanhedrin asked them to do was in direct opposition to what they were told by Jesus before He lifted off this planet and went into heaven, ascended to the right hand of the Father. Or they had to choose either that or choose to continue to declare and heal in the name of Jesus and suffer the persecution which had been threatened. They had to make a decision. Am I going to obey the Sanhedrin? The, the safe route? The route that will cause me little confrontation? The route that will keep me safe? Or do I do that which God commanded me to do? Do I follow Him? And despite the threats and the harm of my body and the harm to my life and my way of life and the, the hard road... What decision will I have to make? I find it interesting that they didn't all say, well, that's a no-brainer. We'll just, uh, we'll just do what God tells us to do. Amen. I, no, there wasn't a lot of chest beating going on. No, what did they do? They fell to their knees and prayed. These were a frightened people because they prayed for boldness. They turned to God for help. Listen. Satan has done his best to silence this church this, in this community. Satan has done everything he can to try to close the doors, to try to put Ichabod on this place, uh, to cast it aside, to close it, to turn it into a garage or some kind of business. I tell you, he's done everything he can. Listen, it's time we turn to God. It's time like we, we like the church, turn to God and ask for that which we cannot do ourselves. Notice, uh, first of all, in, in, this, uh, in this essential prayer here, we see our basis for prayer. In verse number 24, they turn with their voices and they, they say together to God, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Notice he said, Sovereign Lord. Although they were growing in number, they were still the powerless minority. Now we're on the other side of Pentecost. How many were saved at Pentecost? About 3,000. Then we're on the other side of the healing of that man at the gate called Beautiful. The result, even though they got arrested, the result of that was nearly 5,000 being saved. That's 7,000 people all gathered together that named the name of Jesus Christ. Yet at the same time, that is a minority 
in their community, in the world in which we live. They lived. They were under Roman rule. They were under the Jewish religious restriction. They were under cultural exile for naming the name of Jesus Christ. But they were praying to an all-powerful Lord over all. Listen, you need to keep that in mind. We small in number in this room. <laughs> Kalen made it completely obvious this morning. We're driving up and uh, we drove in the parking lot and on the way to church she said, I'm hoping there's five at church this morning. Kalen, I beg to differ. We've had more than five the, uh, the whole time we've been here. But she said, I hope there are five in this part in this church when we get here. We pull in the parking lot. And she said, Oh, there's not five. <laughs> Listen, we small in number in this place, but I want you to know that doesn't limit our God. That doesn't limit the one we're talking to. That doesn't limit the one that we are approaching. He's Lord over all. He's the creator of all, the sustainer of all. Like they said, they're getting in that mindset. We may be small in number compared to Rome and the Jewish leaders in our culture, but God, you're bigger. You're the one that created all things. You're the one that made all things. You can, you can, now, now, this group, I mean, looks can be deceiving. In the Bible, plenty of times that the number of those on God's side was always smaller than the number of those on the opposing side. Buddy, I tell you what, David looked like he was no match for Goliath. Talk about an upset Cinderella story. Uh, Daniel, Daniel didn't look like much for those lions. Uh, Gideon didn't look like much for that Midianite army. Hey, listen, grandmothers and grandfathers, you may not look like much when you're in that back bedroom praying for your church, praying for your babies, praying for your extended family, your grandchildren. But hey, you plus God is more than a majority. Amen? Listen, we may be small, but we have access to an almighty God. Luke 12, 32, Jesus said, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is God's good pleasure. God wants to do more in this place than you want Him to do. I may, you realize that? Fear not, little flock. It's, God, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. There is the initiation of their prayer. They started on a basis, a basis of sovereign rulership. Then there's their guidance in prayer. In 25 through 26, we have them reciting an Old Testament scripture. Matter of fact, if you look that up, there should be a cross, or maybe it's cross reference in your Bible that goes back to Psalm number two. It was the word of God here that we find that was guiding them when they pray. You see, here's what happened they looked around themselves. And they seen what was going on around them and they laid the environment they lived with on top of the Word of God. And they say, you know what? There's something that matches right here. What those Sanhedrin were saying kind of matches what's going on in Psalm number 2. You see, don't let your prayer life be a one-sided conversation. Have you ever been around people that it's always a one-sided conversation? I have some preacher friends, God bless their heart. I'll call them to want to spill my guts and cry on their shoulder or whatever and whine and moan to them. 
And sure enough, the whole conversation, I'm listening to them going, yep, mm-hmm, really, no, yep, mm-hmm, really, no. <laughs> it's all about their conversation. You know what? A lot of times our prayer life is a whole lot like a one-sided conversation. Prayer is not a one-sided conversation. Prayer needs to be coupled with reading your Bible. That's what's happening here. These folks have identified a passage of Scripture that parallels what they're going through and they're using it as their guide to pray. Prayer, for all of us, prayer is us speaking to God. God speaking to us is through His Word. I don't buy all this extra revelation stuff. I don't buy this modern prophet. I believe the canon of Scripture was closed with the Apostle John at the book of Revelation. There's nothing more to be added. Now I admit God does have urgings. God does. Listen, I get real cautious around people that say God told me this and God said to me. You need to be real careful when you latch on to such a phrase. But there are things like promptings, like, uh, like God seemingly speaks through His Word to, uh, to not give new revelation, but to, but to vindicate or emphasize or embolden what He said in His Word in our own heart. Uh, the word, there's, often a, there's a word in Greek that is uh, often translated into a, uh, to the word word in our English translations, the word rhema. And it's that, it's that Word of God directly to our heart. It's not Logos, the general message, the specific message, but it's a rhema. It, it speaks directly to your situation, to where you are. You know, oftentimes people ask me, where should I start reading the Bible? Hey, it, it, you know, I, I always point them to the Gospel stories, to the stories of Jesus, read the biography of Jesus, and branch out from there. But the truth be known, God has a funny way of taking wherever you're reading the Bible consistently and speaking right to where you are, where you'll be six weeks down the road after you started reading the Bible. To address your need and to guide you in your prayer to God. They were guided in prayer. In and, through the, in and through the Word of God, God speaks to us in prayer, we speak to them. And then we see their confidence in prayer. And notice verse 27, did you catch on to this? They're looking at this Scripture, and then they say, For truly, this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to that place. So they took Psalm 2 and they laid it right over their situation in their past recollection. They said, hey, we've seen Psalm 2 fulfilled in Jesus where Pontius Pilate and where the, the, the Jewish leaders and where the Roman government was all turned against Jesus and His death on the cross wasn't a failure, wasn't a defeat. It was exactly what God planned to do. They looked at the recent providence of God, coupled with the Word of God. It gave, us, gave them confidence to address God. Listen. Do your best to remember answered prayer in the past. What God has done in your life in the past. 
Because that coupled with God's Word will give you confidence when you go into your prayer closet, when you go into your prayer room and speak to God in the, in the new situation, in the future, in the things we are looking at in the future. Here we see their confidence in prayer. And all the, all the powerful characters that came against Jesus, or, or some translation call it the, or he, the holy child Jesus, they were just pawns in God's hands. So it is in my future situation, in my present situation, where they are. They're saying, God, we saw it in Jesus' day. Uh, all those leaders were pawns in your hand. Oh God, deliver us now. Give us boldness to do what you've called to do. And take that religious Sanhedrin. Take that cultural exile and use them as pawns to accomplish your purposes for your honor and for your glory. There is a ministry of remembrance in prayer. So often we forget how God's worked in the past and worked and worked in accordance with His word, word, word in accordance with His word. Listen, don't forget God is in control. Never more, never more true in our headlines of today. I mean, where things that we would normally commonly think would be alignment with Scripture, alignment with the truth of God's Word, are being ripped down and torn apart and cast aside. And we might become disheartened and, and fearful. Hey! Fear not, little flock. <laughs> Our Father is still in control. He's been in control in your past, hasn't He? God's answered pray prayers in your past. Just because there was a change of administration in the White House doesn't mean that He's not going to be faithful in answering prayer in the future. That's what they're doing here. This reality of what God done in the past kindles the fire, fans the flame of a spirit of prayer within our hearts. Notice second of all, in this in this element of prayer, we see our prayers concern. Our prayers concern. You know, what are they asking for? They've used God's Word, the past, and they've come to the point of their asking. And what do they want? I said earlier, their choice was clear. They would not stop. They would not obey the Sanhedrin. That was already said. Peter said as much. Look back at chapter 4, verse 18-20. through 20. And so they called them and charged them, this is the Sanhedrin, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They are committed to the truth of what happened with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they're not going to back down. The die has already been set. It's all their, 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 their make has already been cast. The decision has already been made. And so in their asking, we know they're choosing God. We know they're choosing what to do as far as the Great Commission is concerned. But what do they ask for? Did they ask to be removed? God, take us out of Jerusalem and put us on some place where we can live by the dictates of our conscience and our belief on our own and not be, not be crossed, not be infringed upon uh, by, uh, by this world. No, they didn't ask for per persecution to be taken off the table. Oh God, change the Sanhedrin's mind and, and let them put away their whips and, and, and let their, their threatenings come to naught. They didn't ask for that. 
God, this is what they asked for. God, let me speak with boldness. They asked that they would do what they're called to do irregardless of the consequences. Let the chips fall where they may regardless of the consequences. During the days of bloody Queen Mary who who because of her Catholic beliefs was trying to stamp out the Reformation in England by severe persecution of all that believed the, what, ha, what the uh, German theologian Martin Luther had started. Uh, James Abes was a Protestant preacher that evaded capture for a long time. He was a thorn in the side of Bloody Mary and her, her uh, attempt to stamp out the truth of the Gospel. And, but she was eventually captured when he was betrayed by a friend. And he was brought to the Bishop of Norwich, who instead of threatening to burn him at the stake, talked amiable with him, reasoned with him, and said, listen, James, we can come to some kind of arrangement here. Now, I know you're in a fervor about this. And he began with his with his oratory and his speaking ability to lull James Age, Abes into a compromise. And James Abes consented to stop preaching the Word of God. The Bishop of Norwich even made it worth his while. Gave him, gave him a piece of money to put in his pocket, a great sum of money that would set his course. You know, he wouldn't be around preaching and going from place to place. He'd have to make a, you know, a dis- different kind of living. So he kind of gave him some money. James Abes betrayed everything that God had placed on his life and walked away from the Bishop of Norwich. And as the story goes in Fox's Book of Martyrs, as the further he went down the path away from the Bishop of Norwich, the more the coins became to feel like 30 pieces of silver in his pocket. As he walked down that path more and more, he realized he had betrayed his Savior, betrayed the Lord Jesus. There was a realization of what he had done. And in doing so, there came a point where James Abes did an about-face and had the courage to walk back to the Bishop of Norwich to take those pieces of money and throw him at his feet and renounce everything that he had told him. The Bishop of Norwich tried to convince him otherwise, but he was stern and, 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 and steadfast in his refusal to betray the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And on, on 15... August the 2nd, 1555, James Abes was burned at the stake. That is exactly what these people are praying for. God, give me boldness. Not give me money. Not give me sanctuary. Not give me protection. Give me boldness to do what you've called me to do. God, give me courage to follow you when it's not easy when it's difficult, when it costs me something. They're asking for boldness. Boldness that this church is praying for was a boldness that caused that James Abes to make an about face. And then they were also asking for signs and wonders. 
They said, why you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed. I'm not going to back away from this. I'm not going to minimize it. This was a request for validation. You see, signs and wonders were not an end into themselves. That was true in Jesus. His miracles were not an end in themselves. His miracles were validation of who He was and the message of the Gospel that He brought. The same is true with these apostles. This was validation. What they had, what had just taken place in chapter 3 with the healing of the man at the gate called Beautiful was a validation that brought 5,000 people to faith in Jesus Christ. Now there is this, now there's a long rabbit trail that we could go into, and I'm not going to do that, but let's just say this. Most of, if not all, of such miraculous signs we find in the book of Acts were performed by the apostles that Jesus hand chose Himself. An office that is limited in number by Christ's calling to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now there's a lot of folks, we'll get to this in a little bit, there's a lot of folks running around today wanting to be called apostle this and apostle that. And there's a lot of folks that purport to have miraculous power in their hand. I'm not saying, I'm not saying God doesn't work miracles. I'm not saying God doesn't perform healings. I, I, no, I've seen too I've seen him do too much, but it don't come from my hand. It comes from the church praying. That's what we've seen in people's lives this morning. It comes from a church with a bended knee praying to God. Not my hand. Not Benny Hinn's hand. Not any of the other guys. It comes from the church praying together. Now, but when it come from the apostles, it did come from their hand. Because it lent validation to the message that they brought. We have our validation in the Word of God and the testimony of history and very well may have miracles and healings and things that take place in response to the church praying, not one individual's hand. Amen? Does God heal today? Yes. But He does so through the prayer of the church and not individual. And in addition to this, we have the completed Word of God. Listen, don't be distracted by the healings and miracles and miss the main object of their request. Look at this. And the, and the signs and wonders are performed. Notice this. Through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. <laughs> Amen. It's all about that name. That, that's, what, that's what the Sanhedrin didn't like. They like God. They like Jehovah doing miracles. But it's that name of Jesus. I tell you what, it's still a lightning bolt. It's still a separator in our day and time. We can all talk about generalities in a, in a, everybody's spiritual nowadays. Everybody's got a spiritual bent. And they can talk about God in a myriad of different ways. But when you mention that name Jesus, it's a dividing line. It's a separator. It's one that polarizes people. And that's what this is all about. Boldness in the name 
of Jesus. Our prayer is that every healing, every miracle, every wonder that God might graciously give to us might lift up and exalt that name that is above every name. Uh, That name that angels declared would save their people from their sins. Uh, That name of the one who proclaimed good news to the poor and liberty to the captive who recovered sight of the, the blind the sight of the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed that name that cleansed lepers uh, that caused the lame to walk that made defiled women clean and demented men sane that name of the one who finished redemption on the cross with his death and was raised from the grave when death couldn't hold him any longer that name's what's important not faith community church not your denomination not your background not your preacher's name it's that name that's what's important that name is what we need boldness in the name of Jesus this church wanted to make sure Christ gets all the glory and if we're going to be a church that shakes the world we're going to have to be about his name not our name not our popularity We're going to have to be preoccupied with not keeping the doors open or regaining community prestige or filling these pews. It's all about making much of Jesus' name. His name. That's our objective. His name. Oh, listen. We see the essentials elements of prayer. Notice secondly, God's gracious release of power. They prayed their prayer. Verse number 31. And when they prayed, The place in which they were gathered was shaken. God's response to a praying church's petition was a release of power. Every one of you listen to me closely. Do not underestimate the power of a praying church. I don't care how small they are. I don't care how dated their building is. And I'm not talking about here. It's a beautiful building. It's a wonderful place. I don't care how small their community, how small their congregation, how old their building, how dated they are in this or that. I'm talking about because they there is a big God in heaven who can answer in powerful ways. Don't underestimate the power of you seeking the face of God on behalf of what He is doing for this place. Notice, first of all, a divine confirmation. The place shook. I love what Matthew Henry said. He said, this place was shaken so that their faith would be unshaken. This shaking strikes fear into their hearts and reverence and a holy fear of God rather than men. Here they are, they're praying, oh God, God, we pray You'd save us. Save us from their threatenings. And then God says, here, let me shake the, let me, let me just do a little twitch of my hand underneath you. You feel that? You're fearing the wrong person. You need to fear me more than you fear anybody else. Hey, the government probably going to come saber rattling in the next five or ten years. And we're going to see some fallout. And it's going to come down to passages like this. Who are you going to fear? Are you going to fear the government? Are you going to fear the state controlled legislators? Are you going to fear, uh, what, what are you going to fear? Or are you going to fear the God of this Bible? You're going to fear the God of heaven. It's going to come down to some choices in the days in the future. A divine confirmation. God physically shook the place beneath their feet. How could they ever fear a king or a monarch or a religious panel of elders when God's the one shaking the ground beneath their feet? How could they fear such a one when the God of heaven unto whom they cried shook the ground underneath their feet? Robert Hawker 
in his commentary said, Surely such a testimony was designed to tell all the praying seed of Jacob that the Lord, who is a prayer awakening, is also a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. Amen. I love that quote. God, it reminds all of us that God hears and answers prayer. Is God going to physically shake this place? I don't know. <laughs> when I close my message today, I may have one eye open. I don't know. I don't know if God's going to shake this place, but I do want Him to shake us. I do want Him to shake our community, not violently so that people would be heard or anything, but I do want tokens of God's presence, tokens of His answered prayer, a reminder that when the name of Jesus Christ is lifted up, God does things. God does things. Again, this message reminds us that God hears and answers prayers. A divine confirmation, a fresh feeling. They were filled with the Spirit. There is not only an outward validation, an outward validation of God, but also inwardly. Ground shaking can show us who is in control, but Spirit filling can show us who controls us. Think about it. God were to shake the ground underneath our feet in response to our prayer, I would know that God's in control. But if I were Spirit-filled, He would have control of me. That's what we want. That's what we want. What they had is what we want. That Spirit-feeling, that controlling by the Spirit of God. They asked for boldness and they got ground-shaking, which was the divine confirmation for both the believing and the unbelieving, but not what they asked for. Did they ask for God to shake the ground? No. It was confirmation both to them and to an outside world, that God was working in their midst. They got spirit filling, which was exclusively for the believing, but it wasn't what they asked for. Yet the touch of God through the Holy Spirit filling, the Holy Spirit's filling manifests itself in boldness. And that's what they asked for. Listen. Some of the things that we ask for may not be directly answered until God works in us with the filling of His Spirit, with the controlling of His Spirit. When I say filling of the Spirit, there's all kinds of definitions. You've got different pictures in your mind. I'm not talking about somebody frothing at the mouth, rolling on the floor, speaking in all kinds of, of strange languages. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a heaven-sent filling and controlling by the Holy Spirit. That word filling, all it is is a definition of the, of the act of a hand filling a glove. Our, our lives need to be the glove and God's Holy Spirit needs to be that controlling person within our lives. Living in accordance by His guidance, by His leading, by His Word, working in our heart. The ground shaking of providence may boost our confidence, but it is the Holy Spirit feeling, that touch of heaven in our souls that brings boldness to the forefront. I'll never forget me and Carrie were out witnessing one day, standing on a guy's front porch. They were playing cards and smoking cigarettes and drinking or whatever. They'd be, somebody in their family visited the church and these are people that didn't come. We weren't expecting them to be there. They was all around this table talking and messing up and you know, just messing around. And I started trying to talk and witness to them. And, and uh, you know, a lot of part, part of my witnessing tool is, I, is like, you know, if you ever, have you ever told a lie? 
And one of the guys in the back said, I hate a liar. Good night, I hate lying. And I was like, well, have you ever told a lie? And he said, well, yeah. And I said, well, you're just as guy. I put my finger out there too, I believe Carrie. Or you're just as guilty of what you don't like. And uh, I could feel Carrie getting tense all of a sudden. I could feel us getting all kind of nervous on that porch. And I tell you what, I, I don't know what come over me. But I, I just, I continued to badger and to share the gospel and to corner that man with the truth of God's Word. We didn't have an altar call or any kind of meeting like that. But I had an uncommon boldness that I was not used to. And we went down that porch like this, amen, and got in our cars and left. Hey, he can give that kind of boldness. He can give, that is that feeling of the Spirit. I I had no idea that God was going to do such a thing when I walked on that porch. On that porch, it's just God brings the filling of the Spirit brings uh, that to the forefront. It is important to remember that what God sent uh, was not specifically what they asked for, but before what they uh, uh, for, but what brought the result they requested. And that leads me to the boldness. In verse thirty-one, it said He shook the ground where they were, and they were filled with the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. And it says, and continue to speak the Word with boldness. A bold continuation. You know, when you search the book of Acts for the most common trait associated with the filling of the Spirit, do you realize it is not speaking in tongues? It's not miracles? It's not healings? The most general characteristic of someone in which has been filled by the Spirit of God is boldness. Boldness. Boldness, not, not tongues, not any kind of miraculous thing. It is boldness to speak the Word of God. Boldness, the removal of fear of consequence in proclaiming the unpopular message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, was this boldness an Islamic type boldness? Their boldness is, is to run into a country and put everybody's neck under the sword and say convert to Islam or die. Is that the kind of boldness they were given? No. no. Were they given a boldness of purveying their own spurious revelations like that of the Church of Latter-day Saints just made up, conjured up stuff in their head, some kind of ancestry and the, uh, just did they come up with their own revelations? Did He give them boldness just to say well, I'm gonna whatever, whatever comes off of their brain? No. Did it give them a boldness to spread a twisted theology like Jehovah's Witness or the Seventh-day Adventist? No. Their boldness was that of the message. Look at verse number 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The testimony of Christ's resurrection. That's why they're called apostles. The word apostle means in its most general sense, witness. That's all it means. Now there's a lot of people, if you flip through the channels, you'll find channels where there are preachers that call themselves apostles so-and-so, thinking that it gives them kind of a, uh, just a little higher cut above everybody, you know? But the truth of the matter is, if they lay claim to that name apostle, then they are laying claim to a name that could be Apostle Kerry. You like, you like that, right? You like Apostle Kerry, Apostle Jackie, Apostle Jerome. You know why? Because we're all supposed to be witnesses. Witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the general usage of the term. That's, there's either the general or there's the specific. There's no in-between. 
the specific use of that term is for the select witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus, those that touched His body, that saw Him with their eyes, that He manifests Himself to in those, in those uh, 40 days in which He was on this earth after the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what they gave witness to. The bill witness of the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our calling is not to lobby for legislation, maneuver for memberships, or pitch for popularity. Our calling is to declare the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in all of its gospel implications. Because by the resurrection of Jesus... A faith can come to any heart that would believe and trust in Jesus. That Jesus' blood was shed on that cross and the resurrection of Jesus is validation that anybody that will call upon the name of the Lord can be saved. That's our message. That's what we have boldness to declare. The essential elements of prayer. We see that they were guided by God's Word. That they, they saw God in their context and they prayed in accordance with that. We saw God's gracious release of power. He gave them boldness. He shook the place. He filled them, controlled them with, their, with His Spirit. He liquidated whatever fear they had in facing a contrary world. And He gave them boldness to speak the truth of the resurrection. Now finally, I want you to see the resulting impact on the church. In reflecting on this passage, verse number 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. and No one said that anything, any of the things that belonged to Him was His own, but they had all had everything in common. As I reflected on the impact of what God did in response to this prayer on the church, I thought about Psalm 81.10. Open your mouth wide, God says, and I will fill it. You know what the picture of that is? It's the picture of a little baby bird. Have you ever come across a little robin's nest in the spring? And you'll hear them in there, beep, cheeping and cheeping and They'll be kind of quiet until you get close to them and make some kind of sound. And they'll wake up and their eyes will be closed and they won't know it's not their mother. And all of a sudden those mouths go, eyes wide as they'll be. If you watch that mother bird, she'll come with that one worm in her mouth and she'll roost on the side of that. And their mouths will get so big. They're hoping to get just something for, just a little something for their for their little tiny bellies to eat. And all of a sudden, Mama Bird picks one of those big mouths and lowers the whole caterpillar in its mouth. <laughs> yeah, and that baby will get more than it ever bargained for. Church, open thy mouth wide and I'll fill it. What do you want, church? Do you want prosperity? Do you want a name for yourself? Do you want big bank accounts? And, come, and I, I'm afraid that, that mama bird's not going to stop in. But if you want to make Jesus' name known, if you want to see what only God can do, open your mouth wide, God's Word said, and I'll fill it. He'll send the panacea, the all-inclusive measure for our need. He'll send the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. You're looking at a preacher that believes in that. It's happened in the past. 
It's happened in the history of revival. God has poured out His Spirit on a church. He's poured out His Spirit on communities. He's poured out His Spirit on nations. He's done it before. He's not changed. He can do it again. We need to cry out for God's outpouring of His Holy Spirit among us in this place. What they got was that panacea, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of that Holy Spirit that granted their request, remember, shook the ground, uh, gave them boldness, and, and also filled them with the Spirit, but also did more than they bargained for, more than they requested. Notice, I want you to so notice their unity of purpose in chapter number 4, verse 31, or excuse me, verse number 32, and said that all that were believed were of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. Have you ever heard of harmonic resonance? Harmonic resonance? Harmonic resonance is like, let's say you got 30 people in a swimming pool and all of them are splashing about and having a good time. And the resulting waves that take place, they just barely put water over the side of the swimming pool. But you get all 30 people of those in line and you get them to do this in unison, you'll make waves and practically empty that pool on the outside. That's harmonic resonance. Everything working together. There is a magnification of power when everybody... Think about a trampoline. You got five kids on a trampoline and they're all at different timing jumping on that trampoline. All of them get about five or six inches off the ground. But you get that, you ever seen them kids do that? Get one in the middle and everybody jump at one time. You'll launch him to the roof out of that trampoline. You know what that is? Harmonic resonance. Everybody working at one time. All cylinders firing is another phrase. Everything working together here in this church with that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there is a resonance. You know, church is very similar. We all have different backgrounds, different personalities, different spiritual maturities, different ideas about what the church should be. And without the touch of God, we are pulling slightly at different directions, but in the same general vicinity. But what takes place here in this text with the outpouring of the Spirit of God, is a harmonic resonance, so to speak, in which the church, instead of me pulling this way, you pulling that way, you pulling this way, somebody else pulling this way, and us not going anywhere, all of us pulling this way together takes us in God's direction. It's that kind of unity. It's a one soul and one purpose and one display. Listen, I understand. You know, CEOs are hired for this very reason. CEOs uh, have, uh, they're hired because they can instill this unity on a corporate letter level. Good leaders are called uh, to companies because they can help unify a company. Listen, I'm sorry, you may not know this, but when you called me, you didn't get a CEO. You didn't call, you didn't even get a good leader. You ask Carrie, I'm not good. I'm not necessarily a leader type. I'm not a good leader. I'm just somebody that I want God to use me. I want Him to use me to the best of us, of His ability within me to use me in this lifetime. We need that unity that comes by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. I can't negate your background. You can't negate mine. But there's a Holy Spirit that lives within our hearts that if God would control our lives, will get us all pulling 
in the same direction. Oh, listen, for this to happen, we need what we cannot work up, what we cannot buy, and what we cannot learn. We need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We need something outside of ourselves. Then there's a spirit of generosity, number 32. And they, they had everything in common. I'm going to try to race through this. I'm running well, well over time. I want to make note, first of all, this is not communism. We understand that a lot of people that will take this in Acts chapter number 2 and say that the early church practiced communism. This is not communism. Communism is a sister a system of government in which the powers that be take from those that have and give to those that have not. That's communism. That's socialism. Same difference. Take from those that have and give to those that have not. That is not. This right here, what we see here, is not communism, it's Christianity. Christianity gives what it has to those that don't have. Now, we're missing a lot of the context. It's not completely evident. If you became a Christian in this first century time, you lost everything. You lost your job. More than likely, you lost your family. You lost your relatives. You lost your reputation. You lost your business. You lost your income. You lost everything. And many of these widows who subsided off of, a, off of the uh, the generosity of their children. When they turned to Christ, they were ostracized by their children. They had no means of income. And that's what comes up later on when they set aside these deacons for the distribu distribution of bread among the widows and, and those of great need. This was a time of desperation. I'd like to think that this is the kind of church that would be filled with the Spirit that if it comes to that kind of situation that we would look out for each other and that we would have enough uh, to be able to sell what we have to be able to help support those who have not... That's the kind of spirit of generosity in, in the, in the Spirit-filled church and a church that God is using. And I think there's application that can be made among us. Do we have this same spirit of generosity? God help our hearts. We're going to have to have that spirit of generosity among us. And not, not just for individuals, but for the cause of Christ and what we want to see Him do here. What, what great things we want to see God do. We'll have to have to have a... Uh, don't you get quiet on me. Y'all praise the Lord when I'm talking about the name of Jesus and then get quiet when I talk about generosity. That's the first time I've kicked this dog since I've been here. Don't you get shy on me all of a sudden. Here we see there's a mark of generosity. It's a mark of spirit control. Be not drunk with wine, Ephesians said, but be filled with the Spirit. Uh, a drunk has liberality. Hey, by the next round. You know, a person filled with the Spirit has a similar disposition, has a giving personality. Barnabas comes in here. He's one that has a generous personality, a generous giving heart. Now we see not only unity of purpose, spirit of generosity, but the favor of God within the Gospel. Look at verse 33. And with great power the apostles gave, were giving witness to the testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And yet here's another mark of a church that God has His hand upon. The grace of God. The grace of God. The unmerited, undeserved grace of God. A church that God has His hand on is a church in which we can see the grace of God. Grace that is sufficient for every trial, for every turn of providence, in every in every situation, every intimidation, every betrayal, every loss, every gain, every victory, there's the grace of God. You see, it's the grace of God that hedges the path of the people of God. The favor of God. God's grace on us and reflected by us is shown towards those who are without. 
towards sinners, towards those of different classes or colors, uh, towards those who have failed and are struggling, those that are in addiction, those that are in broken marriages and broken homes and broken lives. That grace of God is reflected. That grace of God given to us is reflected on those around us. It's this manifestation of the grace of God that Barnabas saw at Antioch. And come back with a valid witness. God is working in their midst. Even Barnabas, when he entered in, he saw the grace of God. I wonder, can people, when they come into this building, see the grace of God on us? Oh God, I hope so. I hope He can see God's grace in our midst. That's what we want in this place. We want to see God's grace to be evident, to be seen, not only in this building, but also in our individual lives as we are salt and light in this world. Listen. Will God do here what He did at Pine Log Methodist Church again? Uh, I kind of, yeah, I kind of know. I kind of want Him to, and then I kind of don't. Uh, I'd kind of like to see Him shake the ground and all of y'all's eyes get about as big as saucers. I, I'd like to see something like that. And at the same time, I'd rather see Him shake people's lives out there. God do what we, we're not, where we're not even at. God begins to shake families and shake lives and cause fear to come upon them and be drawn to the message of the Gospel. I ask you, do you want to be a world-shaking church? It's not out of the realm of possibility. The prospects of Faith Community Church being a world-shaking church are as large as the, and, and as large as the sovereign power of Almighty God. Our potential as a church is only limited as much as God's power is, is God's power limited, then the potential for this church is absolutely unlimited, no matter our number, no matter who we are. What we see in the latter part of Acts chapter 4 could be seen in this place and with me and you. To be a people focused on seeking Him in prayer, according to His Word, asking for boldness in a world that is in complete opposition to the will of God, asking for God to do what only He can do. I tell you, I believe her. I wouldn't be here. I believe God can do it. I believe He can do infinitely above and beyond whatever we can ask or think. I'm telling you, this kind of church doesn't have to be relegated to the annals of first century uh, history. He can be brought today. This church can happen among us. God willing, we can have it today. We have the experience of being a church. We can have the experience of being a church that is absolutely Christ-centered. Filled with the Spirit of God. Sold out to God's gospel purposes on this earth. A church seeking God to do miracles in people's lives. It can happen here. It can happen to you. It can happen to us. Let's be a world-shaking church. Lift your eyes off of our immediate needs and look upon the fields that are white and ask God to make us bold for His honor and for His glory. Final thought, last thought. A church praying in faith under the guidance of the Word of God has every potential of being a world-shaking church to the glory of God. That's our objective. God, give us boldness to be who You've called us to be. That's our prayer. That needs to be our God, make us bold. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're the whole reason I'm preaching this message. 
Because we want to reach you with the good news of Jesus. The life transforming and changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How He died on a cross for our sin. Paid our sin debt. Was buried. Rose again on the third day. And He promises eternal life to all those who will believe upon that. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we will come and surrender our lives to Him in belief that He is Lord. And if, he, if He's done those things, He is Lord. He demands our allegiance to Him. To bow the knee to Him. He will grant to us the gift of eternal life. Amen? You're the whole reason we're preaching this message. You're the whole reason we want to be this kind of church. A world-shaking church. So people can come to know faith, to know Jesus Christ in saving faith. Let's all stand to our feet for a song of invitation.